0: Biology is the study of living things, an attempt to understand how living things work. Understand, that's a word that means different things to different people. Let me tell you in a general way what I mean when I feel I understand something in biology. I think for me it has to do with the predictability of mathematics. I feel I understand how two and two makes four. Today I understand it and every time I try it. That prediction has been tested many times. It always comes out the same. When I see the laws of nature expressed as predictable mathematical relationships, I get the same feeling of understanding. This is easy to see in physics, which tries to explain the forces of nature. Using the laws of physics, you can make predictions based on mathematical relationships. You can tell the velocity of Newton's apple when it hits the ground, or the amount of electricity produced by a nuclear power plant. When I consider the laws of matter and chemistry, I see that the structure and behavior of atoms and molecules obey these same laws of physics, and they also lend themselves to mathematical predictability. So I feel I understand chemistry and how it works. Now, modern biology, that is, biology, as it's come to be understood over the last 50 years or so, has made a third connection. To a great extent, modern biology explains how living things function how they do the unique things that they do in terms of chemistry. Thus, I feel the connection from biology to chemistry to physics and to mathematics that satisfies me and gives me the idea that I understand it. It follows that there's a hierarchy in the sciences. A mathematician doesn't need to understand physics to do his or her work, and the physicist doesn't have to understand chemistry, etc. Biology is the lowest on this totem pole, so the biologist has to know all of these subjects. Maybe that makes it highest on the totem pole, actually. One of the main things we're going to do this semester is to explain how living things function at the level of chemistry. We'll cover biochemistry, genetics, molecular biology, which is kind of a combination of biochemistry and genetics, and evolution. We'll bring in other topics, such as cell biology, but this and other basic areas of biology will be mainly left to the next semester. Now, having put all this emphasis on biochemistry, let me pull back a bit and reassure you we will not be going deeply into chemical mechanisms. This is not a course in chemistry, and although there is a prerequisite of one year of college chemistry, actually a strong high school course would also be okay. But we will be using the language of chemistry, discussing biological material as chemical structures, not just English words. We'll deal extensively with organic chemicals, But organic chemistry is not necessary. Most of the special chemistry you need to know will be described as we go along. So let's get started in learning the chemistry of living things. First, let's define what we mean, that is what I mean, by living things. My definition is fairly short, consisting of three properties. One, structure, complex structure. Compare a rock with a brain or a real palm tree with a plastic palm tree. The real palm tree might have 20,000 different different types of molecules in it, whereas a plastic palm tree may have four. I don't know for sure. So living things are characterized by much more complex structures than non-living things. Two, metabolism. Living things chemically interact with the environment breathing, eating, excreting, whereas non-living things don't do this. Three, reproduction. This complex structure, complex metabolizing structure, is capable of reproducing itself pretty nearly exactly. A goat gives rise to more goats, dandelion, more dandelions, athlete's foot, more athlete's foot. These are all living things. So structure, metabolism, reproduction are the three characteristics of living things that we're going to focus on. In this course, we'll emphasize a common denominator approach. We'll focus on unifying principles rather than on characteristics that distinguish one living thing from another. The latter is often used to good effect in, for example, ecology and evolution. Darwin examined finches. He looked for the differences that set each species apart. It turns out that the common denominator approach works very well because, amazingly, we living things all do these three things, maintain a complex structure, chemically interact with the environment, and reproduce, basically, chemically, the same way. Although in theory it needn't necessarily have come out that way. Elephants do it one way, dandelions do it another way. Life on Earth, at least, has evolved using one basic biochemical strategy. As this unity became apparent, biologists began gravitating to simpler and simpler living systems to use as models for basic processes. So let's consider what is the simplest living system. Let's use an analogy from chemistry for a moment. Consider corn syrup, a sugar with an easily distinguishable property, its sweetness. One microdrop is still sweet, and if you continue to take smaller and smaller bits, you finally get to one molecule of glucose, which is what corn syrup is. Split that molecule, and you no longer have glucose. You have two other molecules, not glucose anymore, which are no longer very sweet. In chemistry, the basic unit and the distinguishable units are the molecules. We can do a a similar experiment with a complex living thing, say uh, a person, and ask for the smallest unit that exhibits the characteristics of living things in our short list. Take a piece of skin of a person. Put it in culture, that is, bathed in a nutrient solution simulating blood. It grows, reproduces. It has a complex structure. If looked at under a microscope. And it interacts with the culture medium chemically. Nutrients are consumed. Substances are excreted from this skin fragment. The person is alive. The person's arm is alive. And even the arm's skin piece is alive by the three criteria above. Now, shake the skin piece in a salt solution for a few hours. This frees up spheres, easily seen with a microscope. Or cells that make up the skin tissue. These cells are also alive. They retain the three characteristics we have defined. Most dramatically, they reproduce. One cell becomes many. Now, put them in a powerful blender. Break them into subcellular pieces. Some structure is still present, but much less. And some metabolism can be measured, but much less. But there's no reproduction. These subcellular fragments and molecules are not living. They're dead, killed, actually. So cells are the simplest basic unit of living things, of all living things. As soon as microscopes were invented by von Liebenholtz in the 1700s, it became apparent that all living things were made of these cells, clams, moss, chicken, To summarize this so-called cell theory of life, all living things are made up of cells, or their byproducts, and all cells come from other cells by growth and development. And since a cell is alive, it represents a simple object for study, suitable for learning the most fundamental processes that characterize living things. Let's take a quick look at this skin cell. There are some parts we can distinguish and talk about uh, in this course. Uh, this is an example of a little bit of cell biology we'll be getting into. In the center of the cell there's the nucleus, there's cytoplasm, and there's a membrane, the plasma membrane or cell membrane that goes around the whole cell. Inside the cytoplasmic, inside the cytoplasm you find, some cytoplasmic machinery or organelles, things like ribosomes, mitochondria, lysosomes, etc. The cell membrane is very important in several senses. Geographically, it gives definition to the cell. The cell is inside, and the rest of the world is outside. It is a barrier, but a selective one. It contains a large number of channels to allow the flow of chemicals in and out. Many of these channels have pumps associated with them. Some of these pumps pump things in. Some pump things out. Finally, it contains sensors, mostly chemical sensors, of the environment. You can see uh, better pictures than we show here of uh, typical animal eukaryotic cells in your textbooks. And if you want to read more about cell structure, You can refer to chapter four of the Becker text or chapter four of Purvis et al. to read more about the cell structure if you want. Most introductory bio courses include this material at this point. The size of this skin cell is about 10 micrometers in diameter or microns, abbreviated with the Greek letter mu or mu-m. Micron is one millionth of a meter. As an aside, let's consider some units of size at this point. One millimeter is about one twenty-fifth of an inch. This is easily visualized, about the size of a pinhead. One micron is one one-thousandth of a millimeter, and this is at approximately the limit of the light microscope. The human eye can resolve about a hundred microns, or a tenth of a millimeter. Typical animal cells are about ten microns in diameter. The smallest cells are about one micron in diameter, just about the limit of the light microscopes I mentioned, which is also about the range of the wavelength of visible light. If we push to smaller length units, we can consider a nanometer or Nm, one one millionth of a millimeter. And now we're down to the size or diameter of small molecules. For instance, water is about half a nanometer across. The alcohol, ethanol, about one nanometer across. And this sugar glucose that we brought up, about one and a half nanometers across. A term less and less used, but that you may run into, is called the angstrom, sometimes abbreviated just A or A with a little circle over the top of it. This is a tenth of a nanometer, so it's smaller yet. And angstroms are the units that represent usually uh, the distance between two atoms in a molecule. So the smallest cells are about one micron. What about these smaller cells, these one micron cells? Smaller should be simpler yet, no? There'd be less room for much stuff. This is true. The smallest cells are those of bacteria. They're about 1 to 2 microns in cross-section, so they're about a 1,000th the size of our 10-micron skin cell. If you compare, for example, a cube of 1-micron dimensions versus a cube of 10-micron dimensions, they have a more complicated surface, actually. There's a hard cell wall outside the plasma membrane to protect them. But there's no true nucleus and much less complicated machinery inside. No big organelles. Indeed, bacteria are about the size of many of the animal or plant cell organelles, for example, a mitochondrion. You can see better pictures of a prokaryotic cell in Purvis, uh, chapter 4, figure 3. A second big simplification besides size to consider is that the skin cell was one of the billions of cells that made up the organism. For most bacteria, the number of cells in the organism is one. That is, most bacteria are unicellular organisms. Before we go any further considering bacteria, the simplest of all living things, let's see how they fit into a classification of all other living things according to these two criteria so far raised, simplicity, and unicellularity. Let's consider some examples. Those organisms with no true bounded nucleus present, such as bacteria, are called prokaryotes, and they are represented almost entirely by the bacteria. Some bacteria you might have heard of are pneumococcus, for example, which causes a disease. Rhizobium, which helps plants uh, grow, lives symbiotically in plant roots, and Escherichia coli, which is used mostly in the laboratory, but is found throughout uh, mammals. These are unicellular prokaryotes. If we go to the other extreme, in our diagram here, down, diagonally down to the uh, bottom right-hand corner, we can consider eukaryotes. Eukaryotes have cells in which the nucleus is a separate membrane-bound compartment, such as the skin cell we looked at. And here's some examples: human being, we started with, a worm, C. elegans is a, uh, a tiny uh, worm that's used in the laboratory. The fruit fly Drosophila, zebrafish, a mustard plant, the mouse, most of the organisms that uh, we see in our macroscopic world, and these examples that I've chosen are ones that are also popular models, organism model organisms for research. How about unicellular but eukaryotic, or eukaryotic but unicellular, rather than multicellular like? human beings and worms. Yes, there's a, a rich source of such organisms. Some you may have heard of include amoeba, which you find in pond water, also can cause them disease. Paramecium, it swims around in your pond water. Plasmodium, an organism that causes malaria. And yeast, useful in making beer, bread, and also useful in the lab. So these are single-cell organisms But these cells are of the large type that have a nucleus and the complicated cytoplasmic machinery that we talked about uh, in the skin cell. So the final possibility is to consider prokaryotes that are also multicellular. And there are very few examples of these, and we won't consider them. You can find a uh, a more complete uh, evolutionary view of classification of all living things, in the Purvis text, Chapter 1, Figure 8. So the simplest living things are cells, and the simplest cells appear to be bacteria. To discuss and discover most fundamental life processes, we're going to focus on bacteria, just as researchers did during the development of modern biology from about 1950 to 1980. there are thousands of different species of bacteria. How to choose? Consider E. coli, short for Escherichia coli, founded by Dr. Escher, that's the name. It is found to inhabit the colon of most mammals, including people, so E. coli are readily available. They're generally non-pathogenic. Most strains are non-pathogenic. Laboratory strains are non-pathogenic. They grow fast and in a very simple growth medium, just sugar and salts need to be provided in the laboratory, and some major advances in understanding genetics happened to be made by researchers studying this particular organism starting in the 1940s. Biologists wanted to extend these initial findings. They did not want to complicate matters by using a different organism, so many took up E. coli as their experimental material, and in this way, the use of this organism snowballed. E. coli grow by binary fission. First, the cell grows larger, and then when it has reached a size about double that of its smallest size, it divides into two cells. The doubling time of E. coli in a simple growth medium is about one hour. Here's an example of a simple minimal medium where on this diagram, The unique essential elements provided by each compound added to the medium are underlined. First, we have glucose, which provides uniquely carbon in the uh, the medium. Potassium phosphate provides both necessary potassium and phosphorus atoms. Magnesium sulfate could provide magnesium as well as sulfur. Ammonium chloride providing the necessary nitrogen atoms, and finally, water. Plus, there's some trace elements, metals like zinc, iron, copper, selenium, and a few others. Notice there's only one organic compound, that is, carbon-containing compound. That's an organic compound. In this medium, glucose. The remaining substances are inorganic salts, providing the elements I mentioned above. Each E. coli cell contains about 10 million total organic molecules, representing thousands of distinct chemical structures. So that simple diagram of binary fission means, at the least, that for one E. coli cell to become two E. coli, it must synthesize about 10 million molecules of about 5,000 different kinds in just an hour, starting with just one kind of organic molecule that is glucose, C6H12O6. We will be considering how E. coli and some other kinds of cells do exactly this, that is reproduce, over the next two months. I found myself explaining some of this to my father-in-law once. He had seen a diagram of a glucose molecule on my computer screen and asked what it was. I explained that it was glucose, and with this lecture in mind, that glucose was just about all you needed To make an E. coli cell. Figuring me for a biotechnologist and expecting ever greater things from biology from his reading of the Tuesday Times, he said, are you serious? You mean you can synthesize a living E. coli cell in the laboratory from glucose? How do you do it? When I explained, well, you need to start with one E. coli cell to get the second one, his face dropped. Oh, okay, but that's cheating, was his reaction. He was taking life, cell growth, for granted because it was so familiar. Children get taller and taller. The grass has to be mowed twice a week. Mold the size of a quarter appears on an old peach overnight. No, we can't put together a brand new E. coli cell in a test tube. That would be a truly amazing feat. But is it really any less amazing that E. coli can do it without a test tube? In one hour take 10 million glucose molecules and transform transform them into 5,000 different things, all organized to fit together in a cell that can do it all over again in one more hour? How? How do these little cells know what to do, know how to do it, and how do they actually carry it out? If like my father-in-law, you're not really curious about the answer, then you're probably in the wrong course. So let's get started on this two-month explanation. We can break the problem down into several parts, which will give you a preview of where we're headed. One, what is an E. coli cell, chemically speaking? What's it made of? What do we have to make more of? Here's a quick answer. Polysaccharides, proteins, lipids, nucleic acids, and small molecules. We'll be talking about all these. Two, how do we get those chemicals? Answer, from glucose. via Biosynthetic chemical reactions, which represent a large part of metabolism we're talking about. 3. Where does the energy for this process come from? Answer: From glucose via energy metabolism. 4. Where does E. coli get the information for doing all this? The answer, it's hardwired into its DNA. Before we get down to business with question number one, the chemical definition of the cell, which is going to take us some time, let's consider some mathematical consequences of this reproduction by binary fission, or bacterial cell growth. For example, suppose we wanted to measure the amount of nitrogen in a healthy, viable bacterial cell. Typically, for this kind of chemical analysis, we'll need several billion of these tiny cells. That's part of the simplicity of working with a unicellular organism. Since all the cells are the same, any property you measure, for example, nitrogen content, or say DNA content, represents a value that's true for each cell. It's not necessarily true if you're studying a multicellular organism like broccoli, which is made up of many different tissues, with florets, stems, leaves, with each of these tissues containing many different cell types. Say we start with one cell, put it in minimal medium, it and its daughter cells will grow and divide once every hour. How can we calculate the time it will take to get a billion cells so we know when to come back to the lab to collect these cells for analysis? Let G equal the number of generations. From the binary fission mechanism, after two generations, as you can see in the diagram above. You get four cells. After three generations, eight cells, etc. So we can see that the number of cells at any given point, n, equals 1 times 2 to the g, starting with one cell. If we started with a million cells, then n would equal a million, or 10 to the sixth, times 2 to the g. Or g remember is the number of generations more generally starting with n naught cells n equals n naught times 2 to the g since we want to know what time to come back it's more convenient to express generations in terms of time if we let t sub d or td equal the generation time or the doubling time then the number of generations that have passed during the time interval t is just t divided by TD. So generations G equals T over TD. So now, N equals N naught times 2 to the T over TD, an equation that expresses exponential growth with respect to time. Or, more generally and simpler to write, N equals N naught times 2 to the KT, where K equals 1 over TD a constant for a given cell type under a defined condition, for instance, growth medium and temperature. This exponential growth equation can be expressed in many interrelated equivalent forms, many of which are useful. n equals n naught e to the kt, where k is k sub e equals the natural logarithm of 2 divided by td. And writing it another way, the natural logarithm of n over n naught is equal to k sub e, t. And n equals n naught 10 to the k, t, where k equals k sub 10 equals log2, or log base 10 of 2, divided by t, d. And the log of n over n naught equal to k sub 10, t. Note here that the growth constant, k, is being defined differently for the different bases used to express the exponential nature of the growth. You can have 2, e, or 10, or some other numbers, but those are rarely used. The derivation of these forms is described in the exponential growth handout. What you see below in italics, was not presented in the live lecture by intention, since it's more easily followed at your leisure here. Now, to return to the problem we set ourselves, how long it would take for one E. coli to grow into 1 billion cells, we could solve this equation for t, since we know we want n to be 1 billion, naught is equal to 1, and td is 1 hour. Taking the logarithm base 2 of both sides, the base 2 equation n over n naught equals 2 to the t over td we get log base 2 of n over n naught equals t over td then then solving for t we get t equals the log base 2 of n over n naught all divided by td and plugging the numbers in we then have t equals log base 2 of 1 billion divided by 1 equals log base 2 of 10 to the ninth hours. But say your calculator does log base 10 but not log base 2. No problem. Convert log base 2 to log base 10, L-O-G, or to the natural log base e, ln. The log base 2 of any number, x, is equal to the log base e of x divided by the log base e of 2, which is equal to the log base e of x divided by 0.69, or equal to the log base or just ln of x divided by 0.69, since ln with no other indicator means log base e. Or log base 2 of x is equal to the log base 10 of x divided by the log base 10 of 2, which is equal to log of x divided by 0.3, since log log with no other indicator means log base 10. Applying this last one, the base 10, since you now know that the log of 2 equals 0.3 from the line above, then t equals log base 2 of 10 to the 9th, which is equal to log of 10 to the 9th, divided by 0.3, which is equal to 9 divided by 0.3, or 30. So it would take 30 hours for one cell to become 1 billion. Related exponential transformations are 2 to the x, is equal to 10 to the x times log 2, or 2 to the x equals e to the x times ln 2. Also, some useful numbers are the log of 2 is 0.3, and the ln of 2 is 0.69. To continue our transmogrification of these exponential growth equations, remembering log base 2 of n over n naught is equal to t over td so log base 2 of n over n naught equals log of n over n naught divided by log of 2 equals t over td so log of n over n naught equals the log of 2 divided by td times t equals kt where k here equals log 2 divided by td, or 0.3 divided by td. Or, converting to the exponential form, n equals n naught 10 to the kt, where k is equal to 0.3 over td. Since most scientific calculators have natural log functions, similarly, n equals n0 e to the kt, where k equals ln2 over td, which equals 0.69 over Td, which is the usual form of the exponential growth equation. Let's have one more look at the exponential growth equation. We could also have approached this question of rates of change of n with time more directly and more naturally, using calculus. If you have a million cells, then after one generation time, you will have gained one million cells. If you have 200, then you would have gained 200. In general, the rate of increase of n with time is just proportional to the number of cells you had at any given moment in time. Or, dn dt is equal to kn. Separating the variables, dn over n is equal to k dt. Integrating between time zero when n equals n naught and time t when n equals n, we get ln of n minus ln of n naught is equal to kt minus 0, or ln of n over n naught is equal to kt, or n is equal to n naught e to the kt, which is exactly what we derived above. We can now calculate this constant k by considering the time interval over which n naught has doubled. In that case, n over n naught is equal to 2, and t is equal to td. So 2 is equal to e to the k td, taking the natural logarithm of both sides, ln2 is equal to k td, or k is equal to ln2 over td. So the constant comes out exactly as before as well. This is probably the last time you'll see calculus in this course, so don't be scared off by thoughts of complex math. You will need mostly arithmetic, some algebra, and an ability to work with exponential notation and an occasional logarithm. There are several problems of this type in the problem book, solving for n, for t, for n naught, etc. Be sure to do them. Finally, let's look at the growth of bacterial cell culture graphically. If we plot n versus t, you can see we get a gradual rise that suddenly gets steeper and steeper and steeper. This is the characteristic of exponential growth. But from our equations, we can see that ln of n versus t should give a straight line. As we can see on this semi-logarithmic plot, we get a straight line if we plot the y-axis or ordinate in terms of uh, the logarithm of a number. In reality, a growth curve for bacterial culture looks more like this. Where there are three phases. Note a lag phase while the cells are getting geared up for growth a log phase, or logarithmic phase, or exponential phase, which is linear on a semi-logarithmic plot such as this, where the x-axis is linear and the y-axis is logarithmic, semi-log plot. We get a linear phase called exponential growth. And finally, a stationary phase, after the nutrients have been exhausted or toxic excreted products have built up as the culture becomes very dense. So we can treat cell reproduction Quantitatively, and that's what growth looks like mathematically. We now start on the problem of how the bacterium E. coli reproduces, how it grows, how we get two E. coli cells from one. First, we need to know what are the chemicals that need to be made if we are going to create one net E. coli cell. We need to turn to the nature of the chemicals that make up the E. coli cell so we know what it is that we need to make in one hour. We'll start with the most abundant and most important molecule in the cell, not an organic molecule, but water, H2O. We'll use our discussion of the water molecule as a springboard for introducing discussion of different types of chemical bonds that are important in biology. Lecture 2 will start with the structure of the water molecule and how that structure determines its properties.